I'm very thankful to have been asked to preach here again at my home church, Shadow Mountain. For those of you who don't know, I teach the adult Sunday school class at 9 a.m. And we always have room for more attendees, so I would encourage you to attend. I am, of course, just as sad as everyone else that Pastor Larry is no longer here. Um, at the same time, I am happy for Pastor Larry that he has a new ministry in Texas. On a related note, not knowing what the future holds for a new senior pastor here can be emotionally charged. I wish to comfort everyone. Two weeks ago, Pastor Chris mentioned the Bible verse, 1 Peter 5.4. In that verse, Jesus is called the chief shepherd. Okay. In that picture that's up there is those, uh, one of those candy cane-shaped uh, shepherd's crooks. So I've created my own staff, but uh, it's not, not meant to be historically accurate at all. Uh, just, uh, just using it as a visual. The shepherd's staff could be used to judge, if you will, to allow the metaphor to judge animals. Uh, so a shepherd would often correct or discipline sheep. Right? Occasionally, a shepherd might need to instill wrath or righteous anger upon a wolf. <laughs> Thank you. I'll just leave. I'll just put that anywhere. But whether it's judgment. Whether it's, whether it's discipline or wrath, it's still a judgment. It's implemented by the same staff. Although, from the point of view of the sheep, sometimes correction might seem like wrath. But in fact, it's, it's simply merely a very strong discipline. However, the good shepherd prefers the days when he doesn't need to use the staff at all. At those times, the toughness of the staff stays in the background. It is the tenderness that best characterizes the shepherd. Did you know that the word pastor means shepherd? Indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ has always been the senior pastor of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ remains the senior pastor today, and he desires to stay the chief shepherd of Shadow Mountain Church. He will remain the chief shepherd here as long as we welcome him. Amen? Amen. Good pastors are, of course, very difficult to find. As such, we need not be in a hurry to find a new pastor. We just all need to be willing to pitch in and help, as Christians are supposed to do anyway. I have offered to Chris and the other elders that I am available to preach as often as needed during this transitional time. As such, I have decided to start a series. You see, I'm hoping that after today they invite me back. <laughs> this series I'm going to start is called Christ in the Old Testament. You may not know this about my family and I, but before living in Nevada, 
we moved around a bit. We have lived in such places as New Jersey, South Carolina, Colorado, and even Jerusalem, Israel, while I was attending Hebrew University. One other place we lived was Virginia. Now in Virginia, I had a friend named Kyle. In one of my Bible studies, Kyle told me that every verse in the Bible was about Christ. And at the time, I neither denied nor confirmed the statement. I let the idea simmer. I began to notice Christ in many, many places in the Bible, even in places that one might not expect. So now whenever I'm studying the Bible and find Christ, I always think of Kyle and how he opened my eyes to notice how frequently Jesus shows up. He's everywhere. Therefore, this series will allow me to share with you my years of finding Christ in the Old Testament. Did you know before today that Christ appears many times in the Old Testament? Jesus himself affirmed this fact on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. If you look at Luke chapter 24, verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you see the comparison that Luke makes when he retells the events on the Emmaus Road? They didn't recognize Jesus on the Emmaus Road just like they didn't recognize Jesus in the Old Testament. However, in both places, the Emmaus Road and the Old Testament, Jesus had been there unrecognized all along. Let's get some background from the Emmaus Road account. So starting with verse 13. Verse 13, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. In other words, they thought it was a stranger. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have had with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and you have not known the things which had happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed before word, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, indeed beside all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Well, let's stop right there. That's the problem. Okay? Reading verse 21 again. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Here is the disconnect. 
They were looking for the wrong Messiah. They were looking for a Christ who would defeat the Romans and do so on his first coming. In their defense, having the New Testament like we do helps a lot in finding Jesus in the Old Testament. We know that Jesus did redeem Israel, but he did it through his death on the cross, not by defeating the Romans. In their own words, it was the third day. It is easy for us to say that they should have remembered that Jesus was supposed to rise from the dead on the third day. Remaining in Luke chapter 24, we move down to verse 30. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, broke it, and gave to them. Then their eyes were open, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. You see, your eyes may just need to be open before you could recognize Christ in the Old Testament. One amazing example of Christ in the Old Testament is seen when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace. After those three godly men were supposedly executed, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is quoted as saying in Daniel 3.25, Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. I am here to declare today that the fourth person, the one who had the form of the Son of God, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he shows up when people need a Savior. Later in this message, I will explain how Jesus can also be your personal Savior. I already stated that this new series is entitled Christ in the Old Testament. However, today's sermon is entitled Christ in the Garden. Please look with me at Genesis chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat? Of every tree of the garden? The first question I would like to pose is this How does a snake talk? I mean, if I was Eve, I would be more focused on the anomaly of a talking animal than on that apple or whatever kind of fruit it was. Let me ask the question again because this is a very important question for this sermon. How does a snake talk? I would like to pose three possible answers to this question. Number one, Adam and Eve simply were not surprised that a snake was talking due to their innocence. Possibility number two, this creature was some sort of dragon. Or possibility number three, there were lots of talking animals in the pre-fall world. The answer to my question, how does a snake talk, could be as simple as the naivety of Adam and Eve. Although they were extremely intelligent, 
Everything was new to them, and they had never seen a situation where they needed to be skeptical. Therefore, a talking snake was just another new thing and did not arouse suspicion. Possibility number two. Maybe this talking snake started out as a dragon. Have you noticed in movies and television, it just seems natural for the dragon to talk? Uh, now, certainly this is not scientific, but what do you call a dragon with its legs and wings amputated? What do you call a dragon with its legs and wings amputated? A snake, that's right. So there are some creatures in the Bible that are sometimes described as snakes and sometimes described as dragons, sometimes uh, like angelic creatures such as a, a seraphim is in this category. So maybe this crafty creature in the Garden of Eden was something like a seraphim or a dragon before he was demoted to snake. Uh, you've heard it said, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Well, maybe we could also say, every time a fallen angel spits out his forked tongue, it loses its wings. Okay, here's the third option. I'll go more detail in this one. There may be a lot about the pre-fall world that we do not know. In other words, perhaps this post-fall world that we live in now is more different than Eden than just having one stubborn dandelion weed in the middle of your otherwise perfectly manicured green lawn. Uh, I haven't been paying much attention to the news lately, but oftentimes my coworkers try to relay the news for me. A coworker of mine claims that animal attacks are on the rise. It seems every time I see this guy, he has another crazy animal attack story. So apparently, an unprovoked black bear attacked a man in Arizona. Um, and then there was something about orca whales attacking boats. Uh, he also says there's been an overabundance of shark attacks this year. Have you heard some of this stuff? Okay. Okay, well, while sometimes it can seem like things are on the rise, when no scientific studies have been done, it is safe to say that animal attacks had never before happened in the Garden of Eden. We can guess what animal life was like in Eden by looking at animal life in the millennium. The millennium is going to be a time when the curses begin to be rolled back. Looking at Isaiah chapter 11, the Bible says in the millennium, starting with verse 6, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. So, if predators, like lions, are going to eat straw in the millennium, then it's safe to say that predators were vegetarians in the Garden of Eden. Uh, not to mention that death had not yet entered the world for the fall. And maybe, 
just maybe, animals could talk. You may have heard of uh, C.S. Lewis. He's, among lots of other things, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. And he believed that animals could talk in the Garden of Eden. And so he expressed this in his book, Prince Caspian. And I'm going to read from chapter 9 of C.S. Lewis's novel, Prince Caspian. They went a few dozen yards through fairly open woodland, keeping a sharp lookout. Then they came to a place where the undergrowth thickened and they had to pass nearer to it. Just as they were passing the place, there came a sudden something that snarled and flashed, rising out from the breaking twigs like a thunderbolt. Lucy was knocked down and winded, hearing the twang of a bowstring as she fell. When she was able to take notice of things again, she saw a great, grim-looking bear lying dead with Trumpkin's arrow in its side. The DOF beat you in that shooting match, Sue, said Peter, with a slightly forced smile. Even he had been shaken by this adventure. I, I left it too late, said Susan in an embarrassed voice. I was so afraid it might be, you know, one of our kind of bears, a talking bear. She hated killing things. That's the trouble of it, said Trumpkin. When most of the beasts have gone enemy and gone dumb, but there are still some of the other kind left, you never know and you daren't wait to see. Poor old Bruin, said Susan. You don't think he was. Not he, said the dwarf. I saw the face and I heard the snarl. He only wanted little girl for his breakfast. If pre-fall animals could talk, then that would explain why Eve wasn't surprised by a talking snake. So maybe we have explained talking animals. Wild animals run from people today and on extremely rare occasions might attack. This is different from animals in the Garden of Eden. Perhaps they even did talk. However, there is another way to answer our important question. I don't know if you remember what that question was. It's, how does a snake talk? There is another way to answer the question, how does a snake talk? Let's go back to our original verse. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You see, this is the way that a talking snake talks. He asks questions. He questions God. In other words, this ancient talking slimy serpent tempts us to distrust God. So again, how does a snake talk? I'm going to answer my original question a different way. A snake talks by asking questions. He asks questions starting with the phrase, Did God really say? Such as, did God really say there is only one way to get to heaven? Or, 
did God really say unbelievers will spend an eternity in hell? As Shadow Mountain looks for a new pastor, a snake might just ask, did God really say that we can't have a woman pastor? Or perhaps more pertinent for this day and age, every talking snake asks, did God really say that transgenderism is wrong? Or perhaps more broadly, did God really say homosexuality is immoral? Consider your source. That is how a snake talks. Let's read on in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Again, we continue to see exactly how a snake talks. That ancient and crafty adversary speaks in half-truths. And half-truths are sometimes known by their other name, lies. Of course, the talking snake is opening himself up to getting caught here in this deception, but it is worth it to him the serpent wants to usurp the authority of Adam and Eve so that he can be in charge on earth. By the way, usurp means to take by force. Looking at verse 6. So woman, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is how temptation often works. It starts with the eyes. We see something we want, and we become fixated on it. I have worked in restaurants for many years, and I sometimes have restaurant analogies. At restaurants, you often have to lock up the steaks. Why not just hire honest staff, you might ask? Well, it's not so simple as that. The employees see the steaks cooking on the grill or being eaten by the customer, and they are tempted. Boy, I could probably cook them even better than that at home on my grill. Those steaks look better than the ones that they sell at Smith's. And besides, the ones at Smith's are really expensive. <laughs> there might even be a snake there whispering. Did the restaurant owner really say you couldn't take just one or two of those sizzling steaks? Now, every time Genesis 3 is brought up, someone in my household, I won't say who, points out what she sees as the major emphasis of Genesis 3, verse 6. And to her husband with her. Yes, Adam was standing there the entire time. 
They are both equally responsible. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Well, something certainly was different. Adam and Eve weren't so innocent anymore. Remember, too, on the Emmaus Road, it says their eyes were open, but in kind of a different way. By the way, I, I recently corresponded with Brian McGee. And I'm imagining many, many of you remember him fondly. Uh, he sends his regards. He did say, if I dress up like Adam today, that I should be sure to use the after the figs leave costume. <laughs> what is with this whole fig leaves thing anyway? You see, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it. Fig leaves represent humanity's way of trying to fix the problem, trying to sweep things under the rug, if you will. Reading on. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The form of the Hebrew word for walking here is the habitual form. The idea is that this is something God did on a regular basis. Took a stroll through the Garden of Eden. Could you even imagine how wonderful that would be? This is the same Hebrew word form translated as walking in Job 1.7. Look at Job 1.7. And the Lord said to Satan... From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Hmm. Just like the Lord was doing in the Garden of Eden. Interesting. I had a Hebrew professor at Columbia International University in South Carolina who explained to me that this was a direct attack against the Lord in the book of Job. Essentially, the talking snake was saying that he was now in God's place by using this Hebrew word that means walking to and fro. However, how is it that God, who is spirit, was regularly walking in the Garden of Eden? Um, I do want to thank Barbara, because uh, if you were watching at the very beginning, she put some Bible verses on the screen that I didn't even choose to, to use today. And one of them said, no one has seen God at any time. So how do, how do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile that, you know, we saw God in the, the fiery furnace. They were in the presence of God walking right there daily in the Garden of Eden. But yet God is spirit. I'll tell you how we reconcile it. I assume most of you, since you are here, are familiar with the Trinity. God is one unified Lord, yet he simultaneously exists as three persons. Those three persons of the Godhead are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Did you know that God has always existed as the three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? He will also exist that way for all eternity. He'll always be the Trinity. As such, we can be safe identifying God walking on this earth with real human legs 
as the Lord Jesus Christ, just as he did when he was born of a virgin and learned to walk just like any other human child. Likewise, this is how we recognize that the fourth person in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is Jesus. Only the second person of the Trinity takes human form. So anytime you see God in human form in the Old Testament, that is Jesus. Noticing this more and more, I think of my friend Kyle who said that every verse in the Bible is about Jesus and I think he's onto something. Truly, the Lord Jesus Christ was there in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Isn't that amazing? Moving on to Genesis 3.9, we read, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Even now that Adam is caught in sin, the steadfast love of the shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, shines through. Remember I began the sermon and mentioned that Jesus is the chief shepherd? Well, even after the fall in the Garden of Eden, Jesus remains true to his shepherding nature. Old Testament scholar Victor P. Hamilton writes, The Lord addresses a question rather than a command to the secluded man. For God must draw him out rather than drive him out of hiding. He is the good shepherd who seeks the lost sheep. Such a context calls for a display of tenderness rather than toughness. Had God asked, why are you hiding? Instead of, where are you? His question would have drawn attention to the silliness, stupidity, and futility of the couple's attempt to hide from him. We read on, looking at verse 10. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman who you gave to me with, be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And there we have it. The beginning of people casting blame away from themselves. It's not my fault. Don't we hear that all the time? To make matters worse, there might even be implied blame upon God here. Are you a sinner casting blame on others when you have your own sin? That's hypocrisy. It causes eternal separation from God. However, Jesus' death on the cross made it possible to find forgiveness for sin I will explain more about that in a bit. Let's read Genesis 3, 12 again. Then the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. See, before this, nobody ever cast blame on others. And in case anyone thought it was just the man, verse 13, And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, let's say at least she has a partial point there. So 
So how did the Lord punish the talking snake? In the very next verse, the snake is cursed. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So thinking back to theory two that the snake used to be a dragon, this would um, be where he got his wings and legs cut off and now he has to slither around in the unclean dirt. Let's read on. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, let me tell you about my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he crushes the head of the talking snake. That last verse we just read, that is the gospel message in the Old Testament. That is the explanation to Old Testament people how to be saved. You need to believe on the seed of the woman who is going to crush the head of the snake. You need to put your faith on this, upon this coming Messiah. In the New Testament, we know that it's by grace through faith that we are saved. Same thing in the Old Testament. The Old Testament saints were saved by grace through faith just like New Testament saints. God graciously gave them the promise of the coming seed of the woman. And those who had faith in him, who trusted in that promise, had salvation. But there is one more element that's missing. And I didn't read this verse. But Genesis 3 goes on to say that the Lord made tunics of skins for them. Now, thinking this back logically, if God made skins for Adam and Eve to clothe them, then he must have killed an animal for those skins to have been uh, made. And that's the missing element. There has to be a death. Blood has to be shed. There can be no atonement without the shedding of blood. And that was merely a symbol of what was going to happen to Jesus on the cross. Just like all those other Old Testament sacrifices, they were all pictures pointing to the one ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that would pay for our sins, that would make it possible for us to go back into paradise. The crushing of the head is like, the, is, is like the equivalent of the death and burial of Jesus in the New Testament. The gospel message in the New Testament has to do with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And notice it was the same word 
bruise the head and bruise the heel. Same word. The idea here is that you're out in the field and a poisonous snake comes and it bites you in the, in the heel. And what do you do? You kill it. But you better get to a hospital quick because now you've got snake venom running through your veins and it's going to kill you. In the ancient world, they didn't have anti-venom. It was a death sentence. And truly, the Lord Jesus did die. But the resurrection is also represented there in the, uh, the, the crushing of the head of the talking snake. Because Jesus, in the resurrection, shows that he was victorious over his enemies. And those enemies are death, sin, and that talking snake. So there it was. The gospel message all the way back in, uh, in Genesis chapter 3. And did you know that you will see Adam and Eve in heaven? Yeah. So one of the things I did as I was preparing this sermon is I watched other sermons on and see how other people uh, preached on Genesis chapter 3. And, and uh, um, John MacArthur was preaching and he talked about the naming of Eve. Eve didn't get named until after this situation, right? really immediately after. And she was named the mother of all living. So by calling her the mother of all living, it's saying that Adam and Eve were trusting in the promise that the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the snake. Okay? So Adam and Eve believed the gospel. And even though they got kicked out of paradise, they're going to be in paradise with those of us who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Jesus is the seed of the woman and he is the shepherd. He defeats sin. He defeats death. He defeats the serpent. And you know what the next lie of the serpent is? The, the, the other big lie that the snake has for us is you're good enough to get into paradise by yourself. You're good enough to, uh, to get in there. You're not good enough to get into paradise. Your ancient ancestors weren't even good enough to stay in paradise. So what makes you think you're good enough to get back into paradise? The only one who's good enough to get into paradise is the Lord Jesus Christ. And only if you're in him are you eligible to be in paradise with God for all eternity. I mentioned uh, I was going to give people an opportunity to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today. If you could, uh, please all stand up and I'm going to pray what's called the, uh, the sinner's prayer. Uh, if you could just, everyone, close your eyes, bow your heads.
Heavenly Father, indeed, I know that I am a, a sinner. I know that I have distrusted in you. I have distrusted in your promises. I know that I am not eligible for being in eternity with you. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, the seed of the woman, the chief shepherd, he is eligible to be in heaven for eternity with you. And I trust the message, the gospel message of his death, burial, and resurrection. I trust the message that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Father, I commit my life to um, following you and your son Jesus for all eternity. And uh, I want to turn away from all my sinful ways today, trusting you, placing my faith in Jesus. If anyone, and again, all heads down, all eyes closed, if anyone has prayed that prayer for the very first time today, would you just raise your hand? Is anyone for the very first time today? God bless you. God bless you. Praise the Lord. Is there anyone here who has maybe prayed that prayer years ago, but they're not walking the way that they should? You know, the, the shepherd wants to tenderly walk with you on a daily basis, just like he walked with Adam and Eve. We pray for you as well. Father, I may have fallen away from living the way I should. I may have allowed sin to um, become rampant in my life, but I, I'm recommitting my life to you at this time as well. All right, you can go ahead and uh, open your eyes. Um, if there's, of those of you who uh, raised your hand, it is important that you um, make a public confession of your faith. Um, it is important that you follow through, that you show that you're being obedient, that your faith is a true and genuine faith, that you are truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, the seed of the woman, the shepherd. I would like to invite you to, to come on up. Um, come on up here to the pulpit at this time. I have people here who are uh, willing to pray with you. Or if there's anyone who has been backslidden and they just want to um, reaffirm their confession in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you as well could just, um, just come on up. We'd just love to, love to pray for you. Think of, um, think of Jesus walking in that garden. Think of him as, as the shepherd who tenderly cared for Adam and Eve and was grieved when they sinned. But yet we'll see Adam and Eve in heaven because they believed on that seed of the woman. They believed the promise, the coming Messiah. 
And thank you, those of you who may have uh, believed on the Messiah who already came today. I'm still encouraging you, come on up. Or if you, like I said, if you just, um, if you've been backslidden, you want to recommit your life, come on up. And we have one person coming up. If you could just uh, pray with them. Praise the Lord. Anybody else want to come up? Or? You know, one of the things that I tell people to, uh, to really have that great walk with God is to read the Bible. You know, there's other things. Be in prayer, have quiet time, um, get involved in ministries in the church. Um, as far as reading the Bible goes, I kind of hear the same thing every time I tell people, uh, you should really read the whole Bible. They, they tell me, well, I started to, and Genesis was great. Exodus was great. But by the time I got to Leviticus, I got a little bogged down. Well, that's okay. No, just um, go and uh, skip up to Judges. Start reading that. You can get back to Leviticus later. But the important thing is I'd like to see everyone have that daily walk with God where they're growing and um, recommitting their faith, re repenting of their sins daily, making God, making the Lord, uh, making Jesus Lord of their life every day. And once you've truly placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved for all eternity. But you still need to get right with them on a daily basis. Anybody else? I want to give you one more chance. You'd like to come up? Well, then uh, I would like to go ahead and close with prayer. Father, thank you so much for um, uh, this man who came forward today. And thank you for those others who, um, in their head, uh, committed or recommitted their lives to, the, to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, just ask that they would abide in you and that they would be plugged into uh, various discipling ministries here in the church and elsewhere. Um, thank you that you gave us the book of Genesis, that we could learn about people believing in the coming Messiah so long ago. Thank you that uh, you told us about Adam and Eve in their lives. And uh, just ask that you'd be with us, that we would um, just daily uh, resist sin and not listen to that talking snake. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.